Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together uh, to dig into your word, to learn more about you, to understand your plan, um, to get a glimpse of your plan for us, your plan for Israel, your redemptive plan throughout history. God, this is an amazing work that you've given us in scripture. Um, help us to have the energy to understand it, the openness to hear what you have to say, uh, and that your spirit would be present with us, really opening our eyes and hearts to the wonder and mystery uh, and amazing things that you have put in scripture. Grant us that tonight as we seek you and seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, do, we're, uh, we're covering the book of Deuteronomy. This is the final book of the Torah. We will be into the books of history after this. Um, I have entitled this uh, Deuteronomy to boldly and finally go where I told you to go in the first place because this is the story of Moses' final sermon. He is preparing the Israelites to finally do what God has promised them. They rejected it before, and they're finally gonna do it. So to get some background on the book of Deuteronomy, who wrote it? Moses. Um, what is this? It's, it's Moses' final sermon. It's uh, a recap of the Israelite history. Um, it's preparation to enter the promised land and how to remain set apart and holy as God's chosen people. It is a book about future promises and future warnings uh, if they don't follow through, which God tells them they won't. Where are they when this happens? They're in the land of Moab. They're east of the promised land. They're east of the Jordan River, just outside of the promised land. And it takes place at 1405, around 1405 BC, uh, as they are about to conquer the land God has promised them. Why? Why is this book written? This is a book that is written because Moses is preparing a brand new generation. The Israelites had wandered around the desert for 40 years, which is what the book of Numbers is about. But now there's a new generation because the first generation chose not to enter the promised land. They got stuck in the desert for 40 years and the next generation is ready to take the reins. They are reminded how God worked in the past for the generation that chose not to go in. They're reminded of God's expectations and the promises of future blessing and curse um, if they choose to obey or disobey God and his commands. There are multiple pictures of Christ, but the most prominent one in this book is a prophecy about a prophet like me. And uh, I air quoted that for those listening. Prophet like me, uh, because Moses is speaking and he's, he prophesies about a future prophet who will be like Moses. So we're going to dig into that tonight. Some important things to note about this book uh, as an overview to get an understanding of how important this book is to the faith. Deuteronomy is referenced by the rest of the Old Testament 350 times. Deuteronomy is referenced in the New Testament 95 times, which equals 445 times overall that Deuteronomy is, is uh, referenced by other scripture. And Jesus himself referenced the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Torah, more than any other book that Moses wrote. There is an interesting piece about the book of Deuteronomy that a lot of theologians have noticed. The word love is used a lot in the book of Deuteronomy. It's used 21 times 21 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because this is a major theme that Moses was passing on to the next generation so that they could keep that at the top of mind as they take the promised land. That this isn't just about ritual. This isn't about fulfilling a checklist. This isn't about pursuing religion and doing a, a number of things to get yourself towards God. This is about actually loving God and dwelling 
with God, being the nation, being a chosen people set apart to worship God, to love him. And so that word is used a lot. This could really be broken down into three separate sections. The first section would be chapters 1 through 11, which really recounts the past. It covers their story of wandering in the wilderness and the things that they had done. However, chapters 5 through 11 I call the bridge because while chapters 1 through 11 recount the past, chapters 5 through 11 recount the past through the Ten Commandments and expounding on their failure to follow them. In section 2 is chapters 12 through 26 or 5 through 26 because chapter 5 starts with the Ten Commandments, which are part of the law. So really chapters 5 through 11 can either fit in section 1 or section 2, which is why I call it the bridge. Because Moses uses recounting their past to point out how to fulfill the law that God commands in chapters 5 through 11. But then chapters 12 through 26 are specifically more about civil laws and social laws and ceremonial laws. How to put in practice being a nation that's set apart for God. So in those chapters, you see really interesting pieces. We'll cover just a couple of them tonight. Um, and then section three, the rest of the book, uh, chapters 27 on, is the future. It's the future promises, blessings, curses of the Israelite people based on their following or not following God and his law. The inauguration of Joshua and passing the torch on from Moses to the next generation with Joshua as their leader. Uh, and the death of Moses are all covered in the, the final section. So let's start. Deuteronomy 1, these are the opening words of Moses' final speech to the people. He is preparing them to go do what God has been telling them about since Abraham. They're finally going to get the promised land. But these, they, this is how Moses starts that. Verse 1, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. In the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hatzeroth, and Ditzahab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year in the 11th month on the first day of the month that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtaroth in Edrai. So, already in the first four verses, Moses makes a pretty interesting statement uh, between verses two and three and shows the dichotomy of what the Israelites have gone through. He says, it's an 11-day journey from where they started to the promised land. That's verse two. Verse three, now it came to pass in the 40th year. <laughs> so an 11-day journey turned into a 40-year struggle uh, because of the disobedience um, the lack of confidence in the God that continued to provide for them. This journey went so much longer than it needed to. And Moses points that out to this generation. Verse 5, on this side of the Jordan. So again, Moses is pointing out that they're, what they're going to have to do is cross the Jordan. They're on the east side of the Jordan. I find this very interesting because the tabernacle the entrance to the tabernacle is on the east side. And so as they're going to the place, the nation, the land that was promised, where they're going to dwell as the nation set apart for God, they're entering from the east, which is what you do with the tabernacle, which is the place where God dwells with his people. Uh, so the parallel there to me isn't lost. And he says, uh, on this side of the, of the Jordan, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. That's a great start. God says, You have dwelt long enough here. It's time to put your feet in your hands to work, to do what God is saying. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, 
to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland and in the south on the sea coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set a land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them and their descendants after them. But Moses is saying, finally, the promise that was given to Abraham generations later is coming to fruition and God is giving you this land, if you'll take it. All the way from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates. Um, I've heard it pointed out this way that if you actually discover the boundaries that were supposed to be given to Israel, it's about 300,000 square miles. At the peak of Israel's civilization under King David and King Solomon, when Israel was at their biggest, they were about 30,000 square miles. So they reached about 10% of the potential that God had offered them. Now that is still yet to be fulfilled and is expected to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, that Israel will exist in that full, in its full potential. Um, but the, the continual failure to live up to God's expectations are not, are not missed here. So the story continues as Moses continues his speech, right? In the, the rest of chapter one, verses 19 through 33, he recounts the Israelites' refusal to enter the land. This is important because he's speaking to the generation that will. You know, and then in verses 34 through 46, he points out that that previous generation was punished. They're all gone. Not one of them is left alive, which is why they're ready to enter the promised land. Not, not one of them except Joshua and Caleb, who were specifically promised entrance because they were the two spies who said, we should take the promised land. And so God kept them alive, and Joshua is even made the leader who brings them into entrance. So that's 34 through 46. In chapters 2 and 3, you get the desert years. Um, and you see, interestingly, in chapter 3, uh, verse 11, just a little strange nugget. I'm going to read it. 3, verse 11, it says, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits is its width according to the standard cubit. So you might be asking yourself, what the heck am I talking about? Why, why am I pointing out this one random verse in chapter three? Well, Moses just got done pointing out that a generation was punished because they refused to enter the promised land. One of the reasons they refused to enter the promised land was because they were afraid of the people who lived there. They had large fortified cities and large giant people. And Moses is pointing out that outside of the promised land, they conquered a king named Og in Bashan. And he points out the size of this man's bed was 13 and a half feet by six feet. This was a huge guy. He needed a bed that was enormous because he was a monster. And so Moses is basically pointing out to this generation of people, hey, the previous generation refused to enter the promised land because of what they were afraid of. But we've already conquered the thing they were afraid of. Don't be afraid when you enter the promised land. Remember King Og? We took him down. He's the same size as, the, as what scared the previous generation. Don't be afraid. And in chapter 4, we cover the seriousness of God's commands and judgments. And Moses warns them to obey God. So we're going to cover the first. I'm going to zoom back in and cover the first seven verses here. This is now, O Israel... Listen to the statuses and judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land the Lord your, your, your God uh, of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. You have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. So he starts out, he's saying, you're going to go possess the land God is giving you, but remember this, do not 
add to the words I commanded you. And don't take from it. God is very serious about the law and the commandments that he has given them. Now, if you fast forward to Jesus's time, it looks like they completely ignored this. And interestingly, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very concerned about the Torah, about the first five books of Moses. The Sadducees in particular only regarded the first five books of Moses as scripture. But for some reason, they, they missed this part. Don't add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. However, in the rabbinical sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they added the oral law and the rabbinical commentaries, and they added onto the laws and created a yoke that wasn't meant to be put on the people of Israel. And Jesus continually pushed back against that. Oftentimes when, they, when the Pharisees came at Jesus, they were asking him why he doesn't follow the traditions. And Jesus points them back to the word because the word is more important than the traditions. But the traditions and the oral law was elevated to the same height as the written law of Moses. And so uh, for some reason, this got missed. God takes this seriously. And we still struggle with this today. Denominations, churches, legalism, our own administrative issues within the bylaws of denominations, creating extra practices, um, trying to protect ourselves, uh, making sure that we have boundaries around our beliefs and trying to protect ourselves. That's exactly why the, the Jewish law was created, the oral law was created. They added boundaries around the Mosaic law. So they thought if you tethered yourself to these boundaries, there's no way you could go too far. There's no way you could break the law. But it ended up hurting them. It actually caused them to break the law. And that same thing happens with us. We get so tied to the traditions and the bylaws and some of the things we create that are not scriptural. And then we elevate them to the, the height of scripture. Uh, I think... Maybe a good example of that is baptism and communion. Um, you know, a lot of denominations elevate that to a position of only someone who's ordained can perform uh, communion or baptism, which there's no biblical command for that at all. I mean, Peter baptized Cornelius and his household. He was the first person to convert a Gentile and to baptize a Gentile, and he did it without the permission of the rest of the apostles. He just did it in his house, right? And Peter wasn't a rabbi. He was just a guy. He was a follower of Jesus, and he wasn't even the leader of the church because everything ended up, as you found out in the book of Acts, kind of getting run by James rather than Peter, like we like to think. And so, no, those things are not, we elevate ordinances and things above what the scripture actually tells us to do, and we limit ourselves to doing ministry um, that we could do without them. And it actually puts chains on our ankles. Verse five, surely I have taught you the statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation, is a wise nation, an understanding people. For what a great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him. So Moses is saying, when you go in, when you take over, you not only do you not add, don't add to my words, but follow them. Because if you follow me, the rest of the nations will see you following God's laws, and they'll see you prosper, and they'll see the decisions you make that are wise, and you will be a light to the world. That's what Moses is saying. I do want to add um, one extra verse in, um, in chapter 4. If you skip down to verse 30, it does say this, when you are in distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. So, after Moses' description of what they should do, 
he tells them they're gonna fail. <laughs> and then in verse 30, he says, when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord, oh God, you Lord your God, and obey his voice. So this again, this is another example of replacement theology being ridiculous. Moses is preaching to the Israelites and he even uses the end times phrase in the latter days. So this is an end times statement from our study, study of Revelation. This is an end times thing that's going to happen. Israel will turn back to God in the latter days. Moses was clearly talking to the Hebrews, not Christians. <laughs> that didn't exist yet. Um, and he's talking to the people whom are going to take the promised land. He's talking about the, the promised land of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people who are descendants of Jacob. This is clearly talking about those people. Um, and so this will actually help us understand the end of the book. So just another way to point the beginning is in the end, and the end is in the beginning. The Bible is one continuous story. So chapters 5 through 11. And this is the bridge, right? The first four chapters are recounting some history. Um, even though there's some promises and blessings and stuff, it's really about recounting their past, their failures, how to do better when they do take the promised land. And then chapter 5 starts with the Ten Commandments. Uh, and Moses talks about the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 6, you get this. It opens up. Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of, of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, I'm skipping stuff, and you're still hearing all of the repetitive Moses saying, obey, do what God has told you to do. If you do this, you will be blessed. You're taking over a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I highlighted this verse because it's interesting. And we're going to step away from what we're talking about for just a moment. This is a very unique way of saying something. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word one is the word achad. Now, there's another word for one that wasn't used the word yahid. And the word yahid means an absolute singular individual one. If you're getting one, you're only getting one of something. But achad has multiple applications. Now it is one, if you're counting in Hebrew, that's how you start. But it also means a compound unity. So it's the same thing that's used for like a bunch of grapes. You wouldn't say yahid, for a bunch of grapes because it would only count as a singular. It's what you would use for one grape. But a bunch of grapes all tied to the vine is the word akad. So the reason I point this out is because when you have singular words or words used grammatically singularly in the Hebrew, just like in Genesis 1, in Genesis 1-1 where it says Elohim, which is a, a plural word used in the singular, the doctrine of the Trinity is even allowed in the language that's being used in its original terms. So the Trinity is found in the Old Testament as well and is allowed by the Hebrew. Um, so we'll talk more about that as we go through the rest of the Bible. But I just wanted to share with you that that word one is very interesting and in that it still accounts for the Trinitarian God that we believe in um, because of compound unity. Verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is repeated over and over in Deuteronomy. Um, and the word love, here it is, shows up. And this is also what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is really the heart of everyone who teaches, everyone who preaches, or should be anyway. Moses is looking at a generation he's not going to lead. He's saying goodbye 
to the people he's led for 40 years, and he knows he's not going to be with them. And he sees it as important to, to remind them multiple times in this book to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I just, that's worth mentioning because we should. Moses wants to make sure the people he's leaving in the hands of Joshua understand this concept. And we should still understand it today. Verse six, these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children uh, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's saying the word of God is important. Put it everywhere. Have access to it. I actually, I talked to some of the, the students in the youth group um, who had some questions for me over the last couple of weeks. And they asked me, you know, <clears throat> about a bunch of like situations that they had encountered. And I asked them what the Bible has to say about it. That's always my go-to. My first thing, the first thing I ask them is what does the Bible say about it? Did you read? Did you pray? Did you read? Um, and I said this, because the first century Christians, the Jews for centuries have been persecuted. They were slaves in Egypt. We all know about the Holocaust. Um, they were had their city destroyed by the Babylonians. They were taken advantage of by the Greeks. They were treated horribly by the Romans. You know, they, this is a people who had been persecuted their whole lives. The first century Christians also had the government and the Jews against them. Everyone was after them. And Nero, who was super just evil, he would actually impale the Christians and stick a a, a pole through their body while they're still alive and then light them on fire and then leave that pole on the side of the road to light the way at night. This is just burning Christians, right? And so these, this is the type of thing that the Christians in the first century had to deal with for spreading the gospel, for clinging to the words of Jesus that hadn't even been written down yet. Some of them, some of the words had been written down, but not everyone had access to it. Right? They were clinging to the teachings and the word of Jesus and sharing them with as many people as they could. And they didn't have instant access to it. And it was so important to them. They were willing to take on that persecution. But us, in our generation, you can get an app on your phone or your tablet for free. Many of us have Bibles sitting around collecting dust on our shelves. Uh, and we just don't seem to yearn. We've lost our our appetite and hunger and thirst for not the knowledge of God, even though it's right there at our fingertips. They had to go and search for it. They had to find the disciples who were with Jesus and the disciples were always under attack, ready to be tortured. And so this command is very interesting to just have the words of God everywhere. Put it on the the post of your house, bind them on your hand, on your, between your eyes. Have it everywhere as a constant reminder. Always be looking to God's word for wisdom. I think that's something that all of us fall short on, and it's a good reminder, and Moses wanted that for that next generation. And it's something I try to push with the next generation that I work with. As we move into chapter seven, you see, Moses saying this, when, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. When the Lord God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them, nor shall you give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. This is harsh language. And so you might be asking, why? 
the truth is God understood the, how enticing it is. The pagan rituals that were going around, on around them were enticing. Some of it involved sexual acts. Some of it involved greed. But any, it was very self-centered and self-serving, the pagan worship that went on around them. And so God is saying, don't give in to this temptation. Don't do it. You are supposed to be a nation set apart. You are supposed to be my chosen people, a light to the world that when they look at you, they see a people that follows their God and their God is obviously wise. But if you give in to the nations around you, if you, if you buy in to their temptations, if you bring them in to you, if you don't destroy, if you bring them in and invite them in, then what will happen is you will leave me for the enticing pagan worship, which happens. That's really the struggle. This book is predicting the rest of, the, of Scripture. The rest of the Old Testament is predicted right there. The struggle between following God and being given over to the, the pagan worship of the foreign nations. That's the struggle of the, rest of, of the rest of the Old Testament. In verses 12 and 13, God says this, it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep you the covenant and mercy which he swore to your fathers and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil, increase your cattle and the offspring of your flock and the land which he swore to give your fathers to you. So if you do listen to me, if you follow me with your heart, if you love me, blessing. And we're going to skip all the way over to, to, to chapter 9 because this is still, still recounting the past, still going through the stories of their past, discover their failures and what not to do according to the Ten Commandments. Now, hear, O Israel, this is verse 1 through 6. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities that are great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, descendants of Anakim, whom you know, of whom you heard it said, who can't stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today the Lord your God is he who goes over you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. God is bigger than your enemies. Your enemies are bigger than you. God is recognizing you're going to go in, you're going to see people bigger than you, but you're going to give the victory to God because you realize that those fortified cities and those enemies that you have are bigger than you. Do not think in your heart that the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Moses is telling them, the people who, who, who are in the promised land now are more wicked than you. That's why God's giving this land over to you. They're more wicked than you. But you didn't earn this land from being so good. Don't get righteous. Don't get self-righteous. Don't, on, on don't put yourself on a pedestal. God loves you because he loves you and he's chosen you. Those people are wicked. You're replacing them. But he's not, he's not saying you're so good that you're gonna get everything from me. He's basically saying, I'm good. Follow my statutes when you get there. Because right now, you're a stiff-necked people. You find it hard to follow me, but don't. Verse nine, when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So I just put that in there for the future. Moses fasted for 40 days when he received the 10 commandments. That's all you need to know at this point. We'll get to it in a couple minutes. In chapter 13, I'm not gonna read this for time's sake because I wanna try to get through this, but God is bewaring that, is making them uh, aware of the concern they should have around false gods and worship. We're gonna skip all the way to chapter 17 because really we've moved into the next section, all right? The next section is now the laws, the ceremonial laws. The first section is about their history. Don't repeat this history, follow me. 
Now it's the, the laws and the expectations of what I want you to do. Don't worship false gods. Now we're in chapter 17. When you come to the land, which the Lord God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now I put this in here as an interesting piece because it will, point, it will make uh, a lot of sense when we get to the book of First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So God is saying, when you possess the land, you will want a king like the nations that are around you. Verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. So God is saying, you're going to want a king. Go ahead, do it. Let me pick him out though. Um, but these are the things the king shouldn't do. He shouldn't try to, to multiply silver and gold for himself. He shouldn't try to multiply wives for himself because if he does these things, he's going to turn away from me. You're going to see that in every king. <laughs> um, king David was great until he wanted to multiply wives for himself. Solomon was great until he continued to multiply wives for himself and taxed the heck out of the people because he wanted to make himself richer and richer. So you see this, God predicted it all the way back in Deuteronomy. What happens in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, not a surprise to God. He saw it coming and he predicted it through Moses. So that's the reason I wanted to share that with you. Now we get to maybe the most important part of the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And Moses is saying, there's gonna be someone, a prophet like me, but you'll actually listen to this one. <laughs> according to you, uh, according to all you desired of the Lord God in Horeb in the day of assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, Moses just got done telling them to beware of false prophets, but now he's telling them, there will be a prophet like me someday. And you're assuming, you know, it's probably a capital P in your Bible because it was always assumed that this prophet was going to be the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist was asked that question. He said, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? And he says, no. Because he's asked the question if he's this prophet, but Jesus is this prophet. And so after this, Moses says this, to be aware um, of those who may come and speak as prophets, to be aware of false prophets. He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The Lord, uh, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So basically he's saying, um, if there's a, a prophet among you who predicts something and it doesn't happen, he's not a real prophet. So, don't worry about what he has to say. Now, Moses and Jesus, right? Moses predicted there would be a prophet like him. And so here are some of the similarities between Moses and Jesus. Uh, when Moses was born, the king attempted to kill him at childbirth by killing all of the babies in Egypt. Jesus, when he was born, same thing happened with King Herod. Moses escaped that death through adoption by the Egyptians as a baby. Jesus escaped that death by Herod by fleeing to Egypt as a baby. Moses left his seat of royalty in the house of Egypt to go serve his people, the Israelites. God, Jesus, left heavenly glory to come serve and redeem mankind. Moses was rejected the first time they saw him. Moses, when he killed the Egyptian and the, the Israelites saw him and they said, 
are you going to kill us now? Who made you king over us? And then Moses flees. And when he comes back after a while, the second time they accept him, Jesus was rejected by many at his first coming. He was rejected by the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders. But it's prophesied at his second coming, he will be accepted and adhered to. Moses fasted for 40 days in the desert on top of the mountain when he received the law. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert and refuted temptation by quoting the law. Moses is the mediator between God and man who gave the law and prophesied a future redemption. Jesus is the mediator between God and man who fulfilled the law and redeemed mankind. So yes, there was a prophet like Moses. He just happened to be greater than Moses because he's God. And that's a claim that Jesus himself made. We'll move into chapter 21. This is verse 22 and 23. It says, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you shall hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now we're closing up the section really about the laws. This is one weird law that I wanted to point out because it talks about if a man committed a sin deserving of death, he is and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body cannot remain there. You have to bury him that day. So that you don't defile the land, because the one who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus, who doesn't know sin, became sin for us, and he hung on a tree, on the cross, on wood, and he took the curse of God on himself for us. And because of this law, we know that he was buried the same day. That's why Joseph of Arimathea was so quick to react to the burial of Jesus because they couldn't allow the body to be remain unburied or they'd be breaking this law. In fact, Judas, as we find out in Acts, who hung himself on a tree, the field where he hung himself is still barren today. That land is cursed. That's a fulfillment of this law. Then we move into the, the last section of Deuteronomy, 27 to the end. These are about the future problems that Israel is going to face. Verse 15, it shall come to pass, of chapter 28, it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Verse 20 through 21, the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me, the Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. So God is saying, if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen to you. The, the generation that doesn't follow me will be completely destroyed and you will be removed from the land. You'll be dispossessed from the land. But we find out about that from Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. They get removed from the land. But they also get removed from the land in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed and they are completely devoid of worship and they are pushed out into the ends of the earth. And so this is predicted back in Deuteronomy 28. But the story doesn't end there. In chapter 30, it says something interesting. This is verse one through six. Now it shall come to pass when these things come upon you the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where, God, where the Lord your God drives you. Now, this is interesting. This is clearly talking about what happened after 70 AD because the dispersal of the Jews in 605 BC, where they went into Babylon and then they stayed in Persia and some of them stayed in Greece, they weren't pushed into all the nations they didn't go all around the world, but this says that they will. When this curse comes upon you and you call to mind 
among all the nations where the Lord God drives you. Jews are going to be pushed out to the whole world, to all the nations. And then verse two, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord your that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from among all the nations where the Lord God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So at some point in history, Moses is saying there will be a curse. You will be set out, you'll be dispersed into all the nations and you will come back to the land. We are living in that time. We are witnessing that happening before our very eyes. Um, and then there is also a prophecy that Jesus gives about bringing the elect from the four corners of the earth at a second coming, which could very well be the ultimate fulfillment of this uh, at the end of the tribulation period. But we are witnessing that. In fact, here's some of what Jesus said. This is in Matthew 24. Verses one and two, he says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to him to, sh to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another um, that shall not be thrown down. So G his disciples are showing him the temple and all of the stuff that was built for God. And they're like, isn't this beautiful? And Jesus says, I'm telling you, it's gonna be destroyed. It's gonna be destroyed. And Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and what's called the diaspora or the dispersion of the Jewish people. But that story in Matthew 24 also isn't over because in verses 32 through 35, Jesus says this, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So the fig tree is consistently representative of Israel in the scriptures. Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree. When the branches get tender and puts forth leaves, you know I'm coming again. Now Moses made a prediction about the latter days in chapter four. Moses is making a prediction about the dispersion of the Jewish people and their coming back to the land. And there's a ton more in scripture about this. Um, but Jesus also makes this, this assertion in Matthew 24. So it's clear that God's covenant with Abraham, when he said, I, give, I will give this land to your descendants, is an unconditional covenant. And even though the Jews get dispersed, they will come back to the land and that nation exists now and people are coming back in droves. So the promise is, being hap is happening right before our eyes. Stuff Moses talked about is happening before our very eyes, which I think is amazing. And chapter 31 says this, Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. He said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in also, the Lord God has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you just as the Lord had said. So I'm gonna, there's more that I have, but I wanna conclude here because we don't have time for everything else. But this part right here, Moses is saying something kind of bittersweet. This is Moses' last chance to give instruction to a new generation, the generation that's going to fulfill the destiny God had promised Abraham. And he, he, he starts winding down his sermon this way. He says, I'm 120 years old today. I can't do what I used to do. But God's gonna let me see from this mountain the place you're going. I can't go because I, I disobeyed God. I failed. So I can't go in, but I've served all this time 
and now it's your job. And so for a lot of us, I would say this. Moses was 120 years old and he still hiked to the top of a mountain to go see the land God had promised that he wasn't allowed to enter. And he still preached a final sermon on his last days to prepare people, the, the next generation for work. So every day you have on earth is a day God has an expectation from you because nobody here is 120 years old like Moses. And I don't know that any of us can live up to what Moses did, but Moses did get to see the promised land. It took a long time, but in Matthew chapter 17, it tells us this. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But Moses failed. He disobeyed God. He couldn't enter the promised land. But because of Jesus, he's here in the promised land in Matthew 17. Uh, and this might be an example of, who, of the fact that he might be one of the two witnesses of Revelation as well. But what Moses couldn't accomplish because of the law. Moses was the giver of the law, but the law also kept him from entering the promised land because he disobeyed God. Jesus fulfilled through his grace. Because Jesus' grace and sacrifice, Moses got to see the promised land. So the temporary isn't always the gift. The eternal is. And because of what Jesus accomplished eternally, Moses did get his final wish to see the promised land. So that's where we'll close and we'll just pray. Father God, thank you for this study. Thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. I'm sorry we didn't get through as much as I had hoped, but God, I hope that the lesson is clear. You take your words seriously. You want us to take it seriously. You want us to obey it, but not because we're checking off the box, but because we love you. And what we can't accomplish through obedience, we are so thankful that we have the grace of Jesus from his sacrifice to get the eternal reward and relationship with you. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.